Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our hosts, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Ingrid Farrow, are joined by Tiffany Bloom. Tiffany is the author of Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. She is a sought-after speaker, writer, and podcast co-host of the popular podcast, Why Though? A show answering the existential and nonsensical questions we ask ourselves with author and speaker, Ashley Abercrombie. She speaks at conferences and events, and her work has been featured in World Vision Magazine, Publishers Weekly, Sojourners, Red Letter Christians, the YouVersion Bible app, The Jenny McCarthy Show, and more. As a minority immigrant woman with an interracial family, she is passionate about women's equality, justice, and dignity. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Tiffany Bloom. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Alabaster Jar. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. Well, and I, uh, I'm excited about our conversation. This book is, is powerful to read. Uh, it's compelling, um, and you you manage to also um, uh, convey a lightness, I think, uh, in as much as there's a hope here, since we have a hope uh, in the Lord that that permeates this book as well. So I highly recommend it for uh, for our listeners. But in the very beginning of this book, and I want I want to invite you to kind of tell the story about how this book came to be. But at the beginning you tell us a little bit about yourself and you have this sentence that just leaped off the page to me. You say, for the majority of my life, I made it my mission to keep men who had power in my life pleased with me, to stay on their good side and to do what I was told. Yeah. Yeah, you really set that up, didn't you? Well, I <laughs> I will say I'm an East Indian woman who was raised in a very white space. I didn't meet another person of color until I was 12, and I felt neither Indian in America, and as an adult getting to travel to India, I didn't feel like an Indian in India. So my understanding and identity was satiated in Jesus. I found my footing in the kingdom, and I realized in my actual lived experience I really internalized this belief that if I was going to get ahead in ministry and life uh, in the workplace, it was going to be because I kept those who had power pleased with me. And I don't believe that I did it for some sour reason, but truly because this is the way very much of the world operates. And I wanted to be seen as capable and wise and able to do the tasks in front of me. And that largely meant honoring the gatekeepers who in my world were white men pleased with me. Now, some honored that and some exploited that beyond anything I could have ever dreamed. And so really for me, writing this book is this is coming from a girl who played by all the rules <laughs> in faith culture, uh, in just culture, what is expected of a woman, especially growing up um, in a post 9-11 world and looking like I do. It was a different it was a different road to walk, and it was one where I felt like I had to be very, very careful to ensure that I could conform and contort myself in a way that dominant culture saw me as valuable, to sound like them, to talk like them, to read what they read, to pursue what they pursue. 
And so here I am as an adult, and I was in a place in space where I witnessed abuse of power at a woman's expense. And I thought to myself, do I have an ethical, moral, and Christian obligation to speak up when I'm seeing this imbalance of power that's affecting so many women in my sphere? And the answer was yes. So as I spoke truth to power, even though I wasn't the one taken advantage of, I grappled with the financial and relational and spiritual and professional ramifications of doing so. And my experience wasn't isolated. So as I really started to unearth why we silence women and how we weaponize scripture and how the cultural script goes along with that, I really discovered just the psychology behind it, um, verses that we use and how we can right these cultural wrongs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to turn to uh, a little vignette that you give in your book in a moment. But as I was uh, reading through your book and thinking about uh, scripture, uh, I was thinking about the passion and about how Jesus does not speak. Right. Mm. And there is and that's emphasized. Right. That he didn't say anything as a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent. Um, and so often I think that in my experience, that's been put before me as, look, you should just be quiet. What you have, what you just said about, I saw injustice happening around me and I needed to speak out. And I think sometimes if it's, if you're experiencing it yourself and injustice happening to you, you think, oh, well, Jesus sanctioned this, right? Because he accepted, right. he accepted uh, what happened silently. How, how do you wrestle with that, with that silence? Yeah. Uh, Columbia professor Michael Slepian says, we don't keep silence or secrets. It keeps us. And so many of us, we stay silent as an act of self-preservation because we have bought into this idea that silence is somehow spiritual it's, it's, we are in our situation unto the Lord. No matter what happens to us, it doesn't matter because we're here to serve the Lord. And what happens is that belief is manipulated and gaslit into thinking, yeah, you do need to stay in this situation so you can be taken advantage of. And I think sadly, so many women in faith spaces and in mainstream spaces, they think this is my lot in life. This is what I have to endure to get ahead, or this is just how it is for me. And in reality, when we look at Jesus encounter with women, we see a man who was passionate about protecting women's bodies, honoring their experiences, and ushering them into wholeness and calling them daughter. So right. with that knowledge, we can look at our own lives and see that there's room for wholeness and growth, and we don't have to live under the weight of this silence that, again, feels like an act of self-preservation because it does give us a semblance of control, thinking, well, if I don't speak up, nothing bad could happen to me, and people wouldn't know because we've also internalized that if something bad has happened, I must have done something to deserve it. Exactly. So you point out um, uh, in your book, um, at one point you say early in your career, your boss, you say, locked eyes with me and said, my God, you're beautiful. And then he, he eventually complimented your aptitude and, and, and how you work. But it was only after he praised your physical appearance. Um, that that really affected you. Mm. That that really, um, you go on to to talk about how you you were just kind of slotted into a a role where yeah. you 
yeah, talk talk a little bit about what that role was that you saw. Well, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, doctor, I remember leaving his office and thinking, my goodness, I shouldn't have worn this dress today. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want that to happen. I felt so uncomfortable, but he handed me harassment. And in the very next sentence, he handed me praise. And it's like, is this what comes together? Is this how the world works? You know, I was a young 20 something and I grew up in the height of the purity culture movement in the late nineties and feeling like it was on me to guard men's eyes and the way I carried myself and the way I held myself. I don't want to lead somebody astray. That would be on me if it happened. So I internalized that. And then I took those beliefs into the workplace where I was subjugated by those in power and thought, well, this is a performative nature that the reason I'm here is because I'm their token brown woman who's capable. And it was a semblance of power. It was a shred of power and not, not real actual power to enact change in decision-making tables. But at the same time, I felt like, I guess this is how the world works and I've got to take both of them. And if I speak up and say I'm uncomfortable, I will be seen as weak, emotional, disgruntled. Mm -hmm. So it's better just to take it or I could lose my proximity to power. I could lose the opportunity that I've been given so I might as well just keep my mouth shut if I want to advance in this space. And so many women can can truly understand that sentiment. That's right. I think the uh, men and women, I mean, adults like to compliment others. Um, but what you bring out in this is that sometimes uh, what uh, might be just passed off as a quote-unquote compliment is really a way for a man to put a woman in her in her place That's to right. say, yeah. you know, the, the reason you're in the room is that you're beautiful and you might have some of these other assets, but I'm, I'm giving you the seal of approval of beauty here. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, that, that it, it, it's a way to put a woman in her place. Well, yeah. in yeah. your book, and I'll tell you, it is uh, just fantastic. There's so much in there, but one of the things we wanted to kind of walk through is you, you have, these groupings that that you talk about the the abusers, the enablers, and the allies, and we thought maybe we would just discuss each of these mm -hmm. in turn. And I I think Ingrid, you you especially wanted to kind of dive into um, unpacking this category of abusers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the questions, and it certainly leads right from the conversation we're having, is what are the ways that these abusers uh, target women and thereby groom them. So groom their expectations and just talk to us a little bit more about that. Yes. Often abusers, they know what their victim wants, values, and mm -hmm. envisions for their life, whether it's professional opportunity, perhaps ministry opportunities. They hone in and zero in on what's valuable. So then now they have a carrot to dangle. And I think especially, you know, we have these two groups, especially in faith spaces where there's this complementarian, you need to bow to the man. But then there's this faux egalitarianism that is often mm -hmm. seen of, of men who offer opportunity and it's what's on paper, but it's really to feed the ego and agenda of the abuser of power rather than uplift and empower and embolden uh, the women in his sphere. So, so many of these women, they're groomed closer to a man and they they're, they they Honestly, I think there's there's so many of us. We had 
a belief that this person honestly wanted to mentor us and disciple us and mm -hmm. promote us. And in reality, we were pawns to meet his needs and his desires. Now, you couple that with uh, this clear, defined understanding that as men ascend to higher places of power, they see themselves, research confirms, as more desirable, more sexually desirable, mm -hmm. um, more likable. And so they will begin to cross lines and they realize I can get away with this. And then those complicit enablers around them believe, well, this is the way it is. We've got to keep this person happy. So mm -hmm. rather than enacting accountability, they create this mountaintop for this abuser of power to be perched upon and everyone else is there to meet his needs. Now, in faith spaces, we see men who ascended to power because of their virtues and the fruit of the spirit. They will then shed those virtues and the leadership qualities they begin to display are often praised as necessary for the job. And in reality, they can be used to manipulate and gaslight and groom women into spaces where they feel trapped and they do want to advance in their career and they do want that proximity to power and they are grateful for what they've received. I think so many of us, we think nobody's given me more opportunity. Nobody's exploited my loyalty. And so understanding that we find ourselves in the rock and the hard space as, as women when we long to move forward and we are grateful for the opportunities we begin, but we've been trapped into these no-win situations, absolute no-win situations, and we, we need allies. We need somebody to step up on our behalf because it's never on the victimized to move the line towards justice. We have expected those who've been harmed to do the heavy lifting. That is not acceptable. Yeah, yeah, and you described so well the that the full egalitarian. I so appreciated how you described that both here and in your book, where we as women are so used to being set aside, pushed aside, and here a man is taking interest, and they might ask all kinds of questions about you to get to, and we, we're we're flattered. We're flattered. like, oh yes, and then it's so. Uh, describe how with the narcissist also how they will use that and that whole horrible dynamic that is just a trap. Yeah. Narcissistic tendencies in leaders seem to be, <laughs> dare I say, unavoidable at times. But what we need to be able is have vernacular and understanding to be able to see it with our own eyes. Because we'd love to believe that those who employ narcissistic tendencies are outright tyrants. And that's not the truth. They're often the most charming person in the room. Now, just to give scope for those of us who maybe forgot what listeners' narcissistic tendencies look like, it can be a distorted understanding of reality. It can be using those around them to meet their needs. And then once those needs have been met, they will discard that person because they're no longer valuable. They can employ what's called love bombing. If somebody, if they want somebody to come back into their good graces, they've already done the reconnaissance necessary to know what that person values, whether it's opportunity or promotions or what have you, stage time, you name it. They'll then dangle that carrot once again, and they don't have to fish for what this woman values. They know it. And they and what women do when they're, again, flattered with opportunity, because what woman doesn't want opportunity? We employ that euphoric recall, only remembering the good parts of our experience with this person. We see this in domestic violence relationships, but we're seeing it more and more 
in systems and in workspaces and in faith spaces. And it's something that we can't ignore. So as this narcissist only allows people to see his point of view and it's his point of view or no one's point of view. And if you were to voice dissent or any sort of accusation, you would be quickly destroyed. Your character would be destroyed, your position, your reputation. You wouldn't stand a chance because when those who use narcissistic tendencies are backed in a corner, they often come out swinging and they usually have enough people who have been charmed by them on their side to sometimes even do their dirty work for them, whether it be a board, whether it be middle management, whether it be somebody who wants to stay on the good side of those using narcissistic tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've mentioned in this um, enablers, mm. right? Enablers, the passive enabler and the active enabler. Well, talk about some of those people in the room. Maybe they're middle management or the board, but who are those enablers? Right. Now, some people might feel uncomfortable with how broadly I'm going to define this, but the reality is you are either for women and for dignity and respect and worth, or you're enabling. There is no in-between. Many of us are enablers, and I consider myself as one who enabled and allowed somebody to get away with something from the smallest thing to the largest thing until I realized this isn't just me preserving myself. This is me allowing harm to others. So let's talk about the act of enabling. These are the ones who are very aware of egregious acts. Perhaps they're writing payoff checks. Perhaps they're making excuses or they're putting out fires for the man who's abusing his power at a woman's expense, whether it's her reputation, finances, body, um, future prospect trajectory. But then there's those passive enablers, those who don't want to believe that a good man could be capable of bad things. They would rather turn their head and ignore any uh, kerfuffle they don't want to know, or they would rather just believe everything's fine, It makes much more sense. They live in this just world hypothesis where if something bad happens, somebody deserved it. And because then it would be admitting that they gave allegiance to somebody who didn't deserve it. And it would be believing that there's a system that's toxic rather than a person who made a bad choice and deserves some sort of poor treatment whether it's a woman, a young woman, old woman, what have you, we'd rather believe that one woman did something to deserve the harm that's that's happened to her than believe that a whole system is toxic and is enabling a man to abuse his power at her expense. And so what do we do? We use that confirmation bias. We look for reasons to believe that he's a good person and we, we double down and we take any semblance of Uh, gentleness or kindness or benevolence as reason that this person couldn't possibly take advantage of his position platform or power. So those of us who enable, we can do it in the smallest of ways. We can do it in the largest of ways, but it's believing that a good person can't do a bad thing and refusing to believe that it's their responsibility to step up in a small way, in a large way. And we can get in to talk about how we boots on the ground, make some change, but it's believing that they have no responsibility for what's at play. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Yeah. 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 Along with that, you talked about the halo effect and, and it, it is, I, I love how you're identifying human nature. It's like, we want to peg someone, either they're a good person or a bad person. And if we can find something good, then they can't be a bad person. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the halo effect, I liked how you, if you could describe that a little bit better, because I think that's a very helpful term also, especially for those of us who it's so easy to be a passive enabler. 
Right. Absolutely. Because we don't want to lose our place or our reputation. Mm -hmm. We don't want to bend and sacrifice Mm -hmm. our Mm -hmm. social capital unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Everyone is so busy trying to get ahead that we worry about all that we could lose when we speak up for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So the halo effect, as you, I mean, you gave such a perfect description as well, but mm-hmm. this idea that someone's untouchable, they're either good or bad. And once we've determined based usually on first impressions, 80% of us have a mm-hmm. lot of difficulty amending a first impression to believe somebody mm-hmm. isn't who they first presented themselves to be. So they have the halo and this is who they are in the world and they can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. And the reverse goes in the same. So if somebody we believe is, is poor in character, we don't believe they're capable of good. We can flip Mm -hmm. that. Those both apply in the halo effect. And so if we have put somebody up high on a pedestal, it can be very, very, very difficult, nearly impossible to change Mm -hmm. our belief. You know, when you think of the men in clergy who clergy, clerical power who have fallen in the last couple of years, it's very difficult to see so many come out and social media being like, there's no way he did it. Right. There's no way. I heard a sermon from him once years ago, but I, you know, my son was baptized by him. There's just no way he did it. Mm-hmm. Again, we've had a positive experience at that leader's leading that surely, surely this person who I've given my allegiance to or have placed a halo on their head isn't capable of egregious acts. Yeah. So how do we move this? Because uh, uh, I'm feeling convicted, <laughs> Tiffany, in a, in a very good way, right? Like I, uh, I, I am my brother's keeper or my sister's keeper, yeah. for sure. Um, how do I move to be a Nathan, as you put it, or an mm-hmm. ally? What, yeah. what does that look like? How, how can we be that? Yeah. First, we have to understand and admit that this is happening, that good people are capable of bad things, and that this will continue to happen unless we first lament. A posture of humility is necessary before we move forward. Lamenting all that's happened, lamenting how us staying silent perpetuated a cycle of abuse of power, that's a hard pill to swallow. But without a posture of humility, we really can't have ears to hear and a heart to act in a way that will push for change. So after we lament, we need to listen. You know, for many of us, it's our our friends will come to us before they'll report to a board or management or HR or a pastor. They're going to come to our, us as their friends. So to listen without judgment, because it's the first punch when you your your power's been abused. It's the second punch when those who you've gone to don't honor your lived experience and say, well, are you sure? Well, what did you say? Well, did you lead them on? You know, all those leading questions just Mm -hmm. diminish, diminish the moment. And they just, they're so painful and they're so hurtful. And I, for many friends who I've heard from, they said, that's actually more painful than the experience to not be heard by someone who loves me. Yeah. So to just listen. Yeah, Yeah, consider our body language, consider our facial expression. And then we need to learn how these things happen because they are happening all the time, Mm -hmm. everywhere. And then we have got to pursue love and love is not divorced from justice. Now, in many faith spaces, we are encouraged as women who've been harmed to forgive. You need to be Mm -hmm. quick to forgive. And if Mm -hmm. you don't forgive, this is a sign that you are not spiritually mature. And there is an end date on how long you can grieve. And if you surpass that date, well, girlfriend, you're in trouble. This is on you at this point. This is not on this man because he's fallen and he, he's, he's, he's back in power and he's doing his thing. And this is now 
her issues. So understanding that love and justice are on the same side of the coin. Justice is not retaliatory. It is not vindictive. It's scriptural. This yes. is an invitation to be like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And a quick apology from those in power is not what we're looking for. We're looking for justice, recompense and redress mm -hmm. and counseling mm -hmm. and help because we're so quick to restore a man publicly because we see his sorrow play out in public. We don't mm -hmm. see her sorrow play out in public and it pulls on our heartstrings and it's what scholars call empathy. We give sympathy to a man and even as in research, they were able to evaluate who gave sympathy to who when there was a clear imbalance of power like we're talking about. Both men and women gave sympathy to the abuser of power mm. over a woman. We are so conditioned to blame women for their harm, mm. believing that they're inherently evil, that Greco-Roman influence in the first century, that we hold that in this modern day. And we'll even weaponize scripture to keep her yeah. down and to believe that she deserved it. Boy, you just said a big word right there. Yeah. Yeah, boy, oh yeah. boy. And I... Yeah. I'm stunned. I, I believe you, but I'm because it matches my own experience. But I had hoped my experience was not the norm that both yeah. men and women are going to show the sympathy for the abuser. Do scientists mm -hmm. speculate on why that is the case? I mean, they wouldn't if, if you saw someone um, beating up on a on a puppy. I, I don't think you'd have sympathy for it, you know, and right. you'd want to take the little puppy home with you. Yeah. You know, so what, what is it in, in this situation? Or, I mean, do you, do you know? Well, I will tell you that the, the researchers were outrageously surprised. That was not their hypothesis. So I, I just want to say yeah. that this is jarring. Yeah. This is jarring to find yeah. that the majority of us will lean and bend toward believing men, partly because we have so societally conditioned to do so. And number two, we hold up a man's accusations, excuse me, a man's accolades over a woman's accusations. Mm, yeah. A woman comes forward and says, this happened to me. And he comes forward and said, but this is who I am. And this mm -hmm. is all I've accomplished. Yeah. So we aren't weighing equally. We've seen this with Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford. She came forward with an accusation and she was met with, but I'm a good man. Mm -hmm. And look at all I've done for my community and for my family and for women in my world. So we, we, we have just a disjointed way of evaluating the situations. Mm -hmm. And historically, we've held up one man's testimony over several women's testimony. You know, I think of the passage, two or more witnesses, bring two or more mm -hmm. witnesses. This was said to me. Hope I'm not speaking out of turn. Lord, forgive me if I am. I was told, well, I said, you're not looking for two or more witnesses. You're looking for two or more victims. There are plenty mm -hmm. of witnesses to this abuse mm -hmm. of power. You're wow. looking for victims. And yeah. until this man has abused more than one woman, until he's destroyed a few more lives, then and only then mm -hmm. will we take it seriously. Will we strip him of credentials? Will we remove him from the board? Will we take him down from the leadership of this Fortune 500 company only when several women come forward, not one? Yeah, yeah. powerful. And... And you see Jesus in a different way. Go ahead, Ingrid. Sorry, I was... Yeah, no, that was actually my very question. How is Jesus different? And uh, yeah. I just want to say, isn't it beautiful that he is? Isn't yeah. he just so good? Um, previous to writing Pray Tell, I had written a Bible study on Jesus encounter with women in the New Testament, and it absolutely changed my life. I, I grew up in a very egalitarian uh, faith space that valued women, but 
but I would say really getting into the nitty gritty and seeing more of the context, it, it changed me. It's, I think it's the reason I could never possibly walk away from the faith because of who Jesus is, not what the church has done because Jesus is the pastor of the church. So let's talk about how Jesus is different. Let's take the scenario of the woman caught in adultery. This is one of my favorites to unpack. You see this woman brought out in the square. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus and he doesn't make it his prerogative to protect himself. He puts himself in between those who would cast the stones and her. He protects her physical body. Mm -hmm her reputation, but he goes and he changes the subject. He writes in the sand, he talks to them, and then he addresses them and says, who are you? What do you think you're doing? And then once everyone's left in respect and honor, he addresses this woman to go and sin no more. You know, this exchange is now called bystander invention. It is, it is put into every branch of the military it's on every academic institution in the United States. This idea that first, change the subject, interrupt, put yourself in between that who would choose to abuse and that who is being abused. And then you addressed the abuser of power. I've seen you. This is not okay. This is not right. And then in private and in honor and dignity, address this woman. Are you okay? I see you. It doesn't have to be like this. We can walk this out together. So just that, even just that little snippet speaks volumes of the honor that Jesus has for women, that who she is and what's happened to her is not the most important thing about her. I think even you see in the genealogy of Jesus, many women with an irregular sexual history, yet they're still included in the lineage of Jesus. It wasn't the factor that would discount them from who they were and what God had for them, but it was well, included. That's right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned about sexual history, which is often uh, the lens through which society views yeah. women. But you make the, the excellent point. That's, that's not how God is going to define us. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not how we should be, uh, should be defined. As we uh, finish up, I, I just want to, uh, to ask you, how do we raise strong daughters to uh, to maybe try and break this cycle. And how do we raise sensitive sons yeah. to come alongside and break the cycle? Yeah. Well, we got to start young. Research shows that by middle school, it's very difficult to find a girl who hasn't been harassed by a peer, by a boy who is looking to impress other boys in his class and who's looking to prove his manhood to other girls in his class. So we've got to start young. And I have these quick things that I love to teach to parents because Girls will make excuse for the harm done to them as early as 24 months. So if we know wow. that by the time a little girl or a little boy can walk, we need to be giving them the same messages. And it's this, you are responsible for your body, for your eye contact, for your physical space, and for your reputation. You do not get to dominate someone else's body, eye contact, physical space, and reputation. If we can start there and ensure that these things are being taught on the playground where the adults aren't making excuses for the boys taking advantage, whether it's they won't let a little girl on the slide or what have you, they pushing her down. These little girls and little boys need to know that those in power will not let that stand. And as we're having these conversations with our children, before they see those imbalances of power, 
That's the key. Before a boy is in a locker room in middle school saying, hey, if somebody said something about a female classmate, what could be some responses? Let's let's role play some responses. Create those neural pathways. Get them comfortable with standing up for women. Because interestingly, men who are egalitarian in the workplace are seen as weak by men and by other women. So we have made it completely acceptable to treat women poorly. And that's what manliness looks like. My grace, my grace. We have got to roll it back, just like you said, doctor, and start so young and have these conversations. And obviously, as kids get older, age appropriate, begin to contextualize to their world. I have a 10-year-old and a six-year-old. So my conversations with my six-year-old are pretty basic. But with my 10-year-old, he's asking questions of like, oh, man, you know, AJ said this to her on the playground. I said, oh, so you don't say nothing. What, what can you say to defend her? What can you say to stand up for her? We've got to have these conversations now because we see that bro culture goes into fraternity culture and excuses are made for boys to protect reputations of institutions. And they take that fraternity culture into adult life and we have what we have. Yes, yes. Wow. Now that's a that's a very good word. Oh, well, I could keep talking and talking and talking, but we're running out of our, our podcast time. So I would just encourage everyone to pick up uh, Tiffany Bloom's book, Pray Tell, How We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. Thank you so much, Tiffany. This has been a great conversation and uh, blessings to you as you raise the this new generation. May it really be new. I received that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for another week on the Alabaster Jar podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation today with Tiffany Bloom. If you'd like to learn more about her work, you can check out her website at tiffanybloom.com. 